This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we answer all of your health questions here. And it's great to be with you uh, on this February 6, 2021. This is our 44th consecutive program in which we are primarily discussing the COVID-19 pandemic. And it's great to hear some good news, especially with respect to the vaccination program here in the state of Connecticut. Um, As I speak, uh, there are volunteers, including my daughter, Stephanie, um, who is one of the volunteers out there administering vaccines at Dunkin' Donuts Park today. But like anything else you need to know what the score is. And the score is bad. I mean, from the standpoint that we have had over 459,000 deaths in the United States, the positivity rate in the United States is now 7.6%. But for some reason, here in Connecticut, we're doing things right because our positivity rate has been 3.04% this past week, which is very low. We're also among the state's highest in being able to distribute the vaccine. So whatever systems we have in place seem to be working. And like many of my other programs, we've talked about any battle involves defense and offense. So we like to talk about the defensive part first, right? And when we're talking about defense and offense, while I'm on the topic, the Super Bowl is tomorrow. Please, please, please exercise caution. There's no reason to get together in person, especially at an event where there's going to be food, so not mask wearing, and a lot of loud cheering. Be very careful. These can be super spreader events, and there are alternatives. Um, Watching the game virtually with friends can be done. And we're making headway. The finish line is within sight. So you don't want to blow it now. You don't want to blow the game in the fourth quarter. And when we talk about defense, we're talking about the basic rules that we've mentioned many times on this program. Identification, isolation, contact tracing. With respect to identification, we have had a breakthrough this week with the Alum Home Test. That's spelled E-L-L-U-M-E. This is a home test that was announced this week that the federal government will be buying large quantities of. It's a home test for COVID-19. Basically, the kit comes with a swab, a dropper, some processing fluid, and an analyzer. And the interesting part about this is so you swab the base of your nose. You don't have to go way back. You then put it into a little bath of reagent and you connect it to, you screw it into a Bluetooth analyzer. So that little analyzer 
connects to your phone via Bluetooth and will give you the result in 15 minutes. That's what we need. We need to know where the virus is. You need to know where your enemy is before you can attack or avoid it. The other thing on identification that has to work is identifying mutations. And we're starting to do that more and more. We have not taken the lead in this in this country. Most of it's being done in Europe. And basically, you need to sequence the genetics of the virus so you can identify if it is mutating. Dr. Fauci came out with an interesting statement this week when he said, a virus cannot mutate if it's not allowed to replicate. So if you can effectively isolate the virus, not letting the virus run through the population, not letting the virus just transmit at will. If you isolate the virus, it's not able to produce these mutations. And remember, we talked a lot about the mutations being a way in which the virus camouflages itself, changes. It could become more viral, meaning it could cause more harm. It could spread more easily. And those are the things we fear. How do you get out in front? How do you stop it? Well, we said you stop it, you isolate the virus. But obviously, massive vaccination is going to be key. The more vaccine that's out there, the fewer people who can become hosts for the virus. The virus doesn't live on its own. It needs to be in a human to live. The most effective way of avoiding that has been mass, and we've had a lot of discussion about mass. And I tend to think that that may be what we're doing right here in Connecticut. I'm trying to put my finger on it. I mean, again, when you get to isolation, it's distancing, right, hand-washing, masks. And the masks are key. It's rare that I see. When I hear these new laws about people having to wear masks on public transportation or in public areas, I don't see people not wearing masks in in public areas. Um, And it it could be because I'm not getting out there enough, but uh, I haven't heard that from people. The quality of the mask is another issue. I know at the UConn Health Center now, uh, at Hartford Healthcare, they're requiring people to wear proper masks. These are the cloth surgical masks that are made of polypropylene. The best way to do it is to wear two masks. Right? So you put the surgical mask underneath, of which there are plenty of right now, and then put the cloth mask over it. The key item, as I mentioned last week, to knowing if your mask is effective is hold it up to the light. If you could see through the mask, it's not working for you. I'm especially looking forward to this week's program because uh, we have a special guest on the second half of the program. Our guest is going to be Dr. Joshua Sharfstein. Uh, Dr. Sharfstein is the vice dean uh, for public health practice at uh, Johns Hopkins University. Uh, and he's a professor there. Uh, He was also the previous uh, principal deputy commissioner for the United States Food and Drug Administration. So 
He is among the people who helped shape public policy for this country. He's one of those brilliant people, and I'm honored to have him on the program. He also hosts a podcast. It's a daily podcast, and that's how I made contact with Dr. Sharfstein, and that is because he has a podcast called Public Health on Call, and it's a daily podcast. I recommend it to everyone because it really deals with public health issues, especially with regard to COVID-19, and it's easy to listen to. It's a 15-minute, 20-minute listen, so uh, if you can. So in the second half of the program, uh, we're going to have him on, uh, on the air, and we have a lot of questions about him, especially what have we learned from this pandemic? What are we going to do going forward? So we have a lot of questions for him in that regard. We're going to take a short break. Then we're going to be back, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about uh, some of the topics really facing us here in Connecticut, right? We're hearing a lot about teacher vaccinations. Teachers don't want to go back to work unless they're vaccinated. Um, The religious exemption in Connecticut. Uh, And I'm going to get to some of the questions that have come in uh, during the week at info at alessimd.com. You're also in this second segment invited to call in at 860 Five two two nine eight four two, and one eight hundred nine six six nine eight four two. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk ten eighty. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and um, before we get into some of the things I had planned, uh, Jeff called in from Middletown. So we have Jeff on the line. We're going to take your question, Jeff, and then we're going to disconnect and I'll answer because of the complexities of our new setup here. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. How are you today? All right. Pretty good. Good, good. Just a couple couple things quick. Um heard you discussing uh, what Fauci's comments were about mutation and you know, can't mutate if it doesn't spread because, well, if it doesn't if replicate. Able, I, I'm, I study evolutionary biology as a, as a hobby, really. Um, but the, the bottom line is this um, unless a virus can replicate or any animal can replicate, whatever they have for genetic material, RNA in the case of a virus, DNA in the case of higher animals. Um, it doesn't have the chance to replicate, and what you get with a quote mutation is when the genetic material replicates, you get what are technically errors, a mutation, and the error can do a few things. It can do nothing at all. It can be not good for whatever organism is replicating, or it can you know, offer a survivability component that gives it more of a chance to live and go forth and conquer. Sure. So, it's as, as weird as it might sound, and I'm not a giant Fauci fan, but he's right about that. So, uh, I think what uh, Jeff is saying, thank you, Jeff, thanks for calling in with that information. Um, I think that uh, what Jeff is doing is just supporting the argument that if a virus doesn't have a host to live in, um, there's no way that uh, it can mutate. Um, and that's what we fear are the uh, changes um, from uh, letting it just run free um, as a virus. So with that, I wanted to get to a few topics. Um, 
Some issues that came up uh, in the past week, questions to me. Uh, for example, if you get the vaccine, will it treat your symptoms if you've had COVID? And the answer is no. Um, the vaccine is designed to prevent you from being sick from the virus. But if you have had COVID and you're having symptoms, such as those people who are, as we have defined, the long haulers, um, from that standpoint, the vaccine does not actually treat those symptoms. Uh, a lot of people have asked about taking Tylenol or ibuprofen before or after receiving the vaccine. And no one has found that that has affected the effectiveness of the vaccine. So if you're having symptoms after, taking Tylenol or ibuprofen uh, will not affect it uh, to any extent that we know of. Some people have thought to pre-treat themselves uh, just in case they got symptoms. And again, I think that's acceptable. I don't I don't recommend it because uh, you don't know if you're going to get the symptoms. Uh, and in fact, that uh, I never got any symptoms afterwards except a little bit of soreness in my arm. Uh, so uh, there's no real reason to assume that just because you're getting the vaccine, you're going to get symptoms. One of the things uh, I became familiar with this week was the concept of sterilizing immunity. So we've heard about the AstraZeneca vaccination, that vaccine, which will probably be the fourth vaccine coming on the market. And there's talk that the AstraZeneca vaccine will prevent will prevent the spread of the virus. And, and that's this sterilizing immunity. So right now, the vaccine is taken to protect yourself from becoming sick from the virus. But we don't know with COVID-19 if the vaccines also prevent you from spreading the virus. And that's why we want people to continue wearing masks because the virus may be still in existence in your nose and you can spread it. Examples of this sterilizing immunity are things such as the human papillomavirus vaccine, the HPV vaccine um, that many uh, young people get now uh, to avoid uh, cancer of the cervix and other cancers from the HP virus. And that does have sterilizing immunity, meaning when you get the vaccine, it's there to protect you from becoming sick from HPV, but you can also not spread HPV. So it results in what we call high neutralizing antibodies. Another example to the contrary would be the flu vaccine. We get the flu vaccine every year, but Although it may avoid you from getting the flu or diminish your symptoms from getting the flu, you can still spread that flu virus. So it's an interesting concept. And again, it's one of the things we still don't know what we don't know from the standpoint that are these vaccines actually preventing us from spreading the virus? And only more data will tell us that. One of the big things in the news has been teachers, primarily in Chicago, where teachers are refusing to go back to work until they have been adequately vaccinated. The controversy comes in because the CDC has said that schools are safe environments 
and there isn't a need for teachers to be vaccinated before going back to teach. I think one thing we all agree on is we want to get schools open for a variety of reasons, the most important, which learning and it's education. Um, it's also important for us to move ahead as a society. So the question has arisen. The science is saying that it's a relatively safe environment if all of the rules of distancing, mask wearing, hand washing are followed. And in fact, 24 states do allow for teachers to be vaccinated um, as part of the 1B group. Connecticut allows for teachers to be vaccinated as frontline workers in 1B, but we haven't gotten to that level of 1B. 1B also includes adults over the age of 65. And again, we do not have sufficient amounts of vaccine for that. But with the teachers, we're dealing with a problem of perception versus science. The perception is that if they're vaccinated, they will have total immunity from the virus. And I think that's absolutely true. And they would feel safer going back with the vaccination. Honestly, I believe in vaccinating them. If that's what it's going to take to get them back, we've got to get to 80% of our population. And right now, their polls are being taken. And the latest one says 24% of people in the United States will never be vaccinated against COVID-19. That's a real problem because we need to get to that herd immunity if we're going to stop this virus. So we need to get to that number. And if it means vaccinating these teachers, vaccinate them. If that's the way we're going to open schools, because it's so important for society to move ahead. When I think of all the parents who are staying home, trying to work at home when they would be better off working in an environment, uh, let's just get it done. And that's my opinion on this. And I think many states feel the same way. Um, so there are times where the science of it is not necessarily the way you need to create regulation. Uh, one of the things coming up this week here in Connecticut has been the religious exemption uh, for vaccination in Connecticut. And uh, this bill has been back and forth for so long. It was supposed to get voted on last year in 2020, but did not uh, because of the COVID-19 vaccine uh, pandemic. So basically, it's an effort to eliminate and erase the religious exemption for mandatory school vaccinations. And the reason this has become a problem is because in the school years between 2017-2018 and the subsequent school year 2018-2019, okay, we started to see a drop in vaccines. In P we started to see an increase of 25% in people refusing to vaccinate their children. And just in between those two school years, um, we started to see that our numbers dropped below the 95% needed for herd immunity against measles. Our state data show that 134 schools 
um, really at which they're at 95% or less. Now, the bill doesn't force children to be immunized. No one's saying we're going to hold down your kid and shove a needle in them. But it does bar children who are not vaccinated because of religious or personal belief from attending public or private school. That's what the law says. And it's important because there are other children who cannot be vaccinated due to medical conditions and should not be subjected to the various illnesses. So it's important from a public health perspective. People have a right to not immunize their children, but really don't hide behind religion because there are no organized religions that actually say they don't believe in vaccination. With that, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. Joshua Sharfstein. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it gives me great pleasure to introduce our guest this segment of the program, Dr. Joshua Sharfstein. Dr. Sharfstein is the Vice Dean for Public Health Practice and Community Engagement at Johns Hopkins University. He's a professor there. He was previously the Secretary of the Maryland Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. He was also the Principal Deputy Commissioner of the United States Food and Drug Admission. He is also the host of a daily podcast called Public Health on Call. It's an excellent podcast, and I have been binge listening to that podcast and learning a great deal from Dr. Sharfstein. Josh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Josh, let's get right into it. From a public health perspective, has this pandemic kind of pointed out some of the shortcomings in our U.S. healthcare system? And, and if so, how do we correct this? So I think the answer to your question is a big yes. It's pointed out many different shortcomings, um, ranging from how we pay for health care, how people access health care, how our public health system is organized, to the fairness of our public health and health care system. So many different lessons. And You know, what tends to happen after a big crisis is that people just want to go back to uh, the old times, you know, just just a little bit return to normalcy. But hopefully we can learn in this case that our healthcare system might have been bright and shiny, but it really didn't hold up under the stress. We had all kinds of problems. And hopefully we will, you know, not just go back to what we were doing before, but we can really think about how we can have a more resilient healthcare system that delivers more health for people. And so concretely, I think that means really looking at how people access healthcare, make sure healthcare is available to people. Um, They can go to their primary care doctors, they can um, get access to medicines that they need, that hospitals have resources and the ability to scale up in, in the setting of a crisis, and that the public health system has core resources. We have laboratories that can do testing. We have um, outreach that can go into every type of community um, and uh, work with partners there to get good information to people and to help people understand, um, you know, what's happening and what they can do to protect themselves. And and, uh, ultimately, um, you know, try to address some of the underlying reasons why we had so many uh, sick people and dying people here in the United States. 
so how do we make these corrections? So, certainly, it's not been for cost. Um, I, I think, why haven't we invested in the public health infrastructure and the healthcare infrastructure uh, in this country as other countries have? Well, we have the most expensive healthcare system in the world by a mile. We spend so yeah. much more, I think, than even the number two, maybe 40% more than Switzerland. Um, and yet, we have one of the lowest life expectancies for um, countries of our you know, economic wealth, some of the largest disparities between by income, by r- rural urban, by race, ethnicity. And so we pay the most. And within our you know, peer group, we get the least for it. One of the reasons for that is so much of what we spend goes towards the care of people who are sick. And so little goes to preventing people from getting sick in the first place. In other countries, it's much more split. In our country, it's like 97% and 3%. And so you have these gorgeous, large hospitals that can you know, see so many very sick patients, and you have these small, underfunded health departments, which could prevent the need for you know, so many uh, procedures and so many expensive intensive care unit admissions. And it's just really unbalanced. And not only is that bad because we're so sick, even before the pandemic, but it turns out that's not so good during a pandemic because what has, you know, transpired is that those huge, you know, healthcare systems are really dependent on doing a lot of elective procedures. When those dried up, they suddenly went into financial crisis and started laying off people. So the moment we wanted to really use the healthcare system for a pandemic, we really couldn't even use it. In the meantime, we had such a small and atrophied public health system that it really couldn't, um, you know, it, do what was necessary, wide-scale testing, contact tracing, mitigation, all kinds of different things, and now vaccination. So, you know, we really have to think about rebalancing. I think we have to think about um, investing in the parts of healthcare that do prevention, changing the way we pay for healthcare so it's not all so much fee-for-service, and really investing in that 3% so that um, we have the ability to keep more people healthy. Because, you know, it's, it's a saying in public health, the best way to to help sick people is to keep them from getting sick in the first place. So, so accurate from from that standpoint. One of the things we keep hearing is how we're seeing more of the COVID pandemic affecting minority and underserved populations. But isn't that the case with healthcare in general? Well, it's pretty staggering for the pandemic. I mean, the, the, if you adjust for AIDS, which you should, you see a threefold increase in death for African-Americans and Latino persons in the United States, that is just a staggering increase, threefold increase in the, in the risk of death from COVID. So you have both the increased risk of getting COVID, the increased risk of getting sick from COVID, the increased risk of dying from COVID. And um, why is that the case? And, you know, it's a combination of factors. It's really a perfect storm. You have, if you start, you know, right at the, at the edge, you have problems in the healthcare system, you have Problems accessing healthcare. There are all kinds of stories of people being turned away from healthcare, people who don't have doctors to call, people who um, may show up late because they don't uh, trust the healthcare system in many cases for a good reason. But then you can go back to their exposure. You know, people who have jobs where they didn't get adequate protective equipment, jobs that really support the rest of the society, you know, and um, as well as the living conditions trouble getting food, you know, very low-wage jobs so that people really can't buy up food. They have to go out again and again and again and again and put themselves at risk. So it's a combination of 
healthcare system factors, employment factors, social factors that have led to this just shocking disparity. And, you know, I think that we're not really confronting that. I think it's known that there's this disparity, but what does it really take to fix? Well, it takes changing the way the healthcare system is, you know, uh, focuses on people and making sure it's more fair and, you know, rooting out different kinds of bias within healthcare. But you have to do more than that. It really requires job protections for people. It requires, um, you know, changes to uh, things like housing and transportation so that people, you know, aren't living in crowded conditions. They don't have to take crowded transportation. Um, that, you know, that there's enough um, uh, social resources for people to be able to have the opportunity to live a healthy life. And so, you know, there are all kinds of things to do to fix this. Um, it's not a question of can everything be done tomorrow. Of course it can't. But it's a question of are we committed to moving in, in the right direction to be able to do it. Which brings me to the next question is if we're to do that and try to accomplish that, and, and really, Josh, you're one of the minds that people look to, I mean, uh, in terms of public health. How long would it take to get that if we made that commitment on a consistent basis? How long do you think it would take to get there? So um, I think it's possible to see impact very quickly, um, but, you know, truly undoing what we've been dealing with for really decades and beyond, it's going to take some time. You know, I think the American Public Health Association's motto is like the healthiest generation in a generation. But I think all along the way, you can see progress. Some of those things are pretty easy. I'll tell you something that is like in the next week is fixing the vaccine distribution which has been terribly inequitable in a lot of places. So that's something that will actually, you know, make things better. But you um, also have to think about some very serious structural issues in society, and that's going to take longer. So to me, it's um, not seeing it as only the toughest issues, seeing it as a continuum. And what I think is if you can make progress on some of the smaller things, it helps you gather momentum. I mean, you want to never pretend like those small things are enough, but to show that actually if we focus on this, we can make progress. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. Joshua Sharfstein. And we're talking about public health and how it's been affected through the COVID-19 pandemic. When we come back, we're going to be talking about what keeps people like Dr. Sharfstein up at night when it comes to public health issues facing us. And some of the things he's learned from producing his podcast. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds with my guest, Dr. Joshua Sharfstein, who is the Vice Dean of Public Health Practice and Community Engagement at the Johns Hopkins University. Josh, here in Connecticut, we're dealing with, and this week we're going to be dealing with, again, uh, policy regarding the anti-vaccination groups. Basically, uh, we have a religious exemption, and there is a bill to get rid of the religious exemption since our numbers of young children going to school um, who are not vaccinated has been going up. Um, and we have fallen below the 95% threshold for measles. And it's a, it's a double question. How do you deal with anti-vaccine and how are we dealing with vaccine hesitancy when it comes to the COVID-19 vaccination? 
Sure. So, you know, this, this is a, a big challenge because there's a lot of misinformation and misunderstanding about vaccines out there. Um, I think that when uh, people have studied vaccine acceptance, they find that there's a population that's really dug in and really, you know, deeply distrustful of vaccines. Then there are a lot more people who have questions about vaccines and, you know, are open to getting vaccinated, but really want to make sure they get their questions answered. And then there are people who are pretty enthusiastic about vaccines. And we see that, of course, with the COVID-19 vaccine, we see that there are people who are, you know, basically pounding on the door of the pharmacy wanting to get vaccinated because this is a deadly pandemic and the vaccines are so effective at reducing disease. Um, On the other hand, we also see uh, a good number of people, some surveys, maybe a third, who are very open to getting vaccinated, um, but have questions. And, you know, those questions, uh, I think, generally come from very good places. People, you know, have read something or they want to get, you know, they wonder whether the vaccine was rushed, for example, or what kind of studies were done about that or what might be in the vaccine. And for the, it's really important for those people to answer those questions, not to say, come on, you know, just get with the program. That's the wrong way to approach that. You've got to listen and give good information and answer questions and hopefully you know, work with um, hopefully the people, some of the people who are doing that are their own doctors because studies show that people really do trust their, their doctors, their nurses to talk to them about the vaccine. Um, in addition to other groups, including, you know, uh, local leaders, religious groups, um, and uh, public health agencies can be very helpful to answering people's questions. When it comes to people who are really, really, really dug in, it's, you know, not so easy um, and those people may not get vaccinated. You know, but the goal is to try to get as many people as possible, get that number above the threshold for population immunity so it really allows for society to open back up again. And I think that sometimes people focus a lot on the very small number of people who are just absolutely convinced that there's a conspiracy and they don't spend enough time really, you know, engaging and listening and answering questions for people who have questions and are open to getting vaccinated but just aren't ready to get it right now. I think that's a great strategy. Uh, what's something you've learned? I mean, your podcasts are great, by the way, um, and and you've done a lot of them. You do them every day. What's one thing you've learned from your podcasts with regard to the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, especially from the standpoint of, I mean, you've, you've interviewed so many health experts in this field. Uh, what's one thing you've learned from it? Well, as you know, you know, uh, Doing a podcast is an incredible learning experience. Um, there's so many um, uh, interesting perspectives, so much new data to go through. I mean, I learn stuff with every episode. And, and like you said, it's called Public Health on Call, and you can find it anywhere. I found some of the most interesting podcasts where I talk to literature professors about famous works of literature that have to do with what we're dealing with now because it shows how universal some of the themes are. You know, so, for example, I spoke with the chair of the English department at Johns Hopkins about The Plague, the book by Albert Camus, um, which uh, was about a plague um, in Algeria, I believe, and how um, society responded to that, how there were vast inequities, how, you know, um, people kind of revealed themselves in different ways under the stress of infection and uh, what people learned from uh, that experience. And so many of those aspects 
resonated uh, with what's actually going on now. There was another one I did with a professor of Scandinavian literature about a play um, by Ibsen called Enemy of the People, which is about a health officer who discovers a um, contamination of the baths that were like the center of the town's economy. People would come and, and take natural baths. And he discovered they were spreading illness and wanted to close them and said, okay, we've got to close them. But everybody said, my gosh, we, that's our economy. You, know, you can't close them. And there was a huge fight, including with his brother. And the public health officer was declared an enemy of the people. Well, what you see now is that public health officials who are advocating for mask wearing are getting attacked, harassed, protests on their lawn late at night, screaming things, waking up the neighbors. Um, really unprecedented in the United States. But, you know, this kind of dynamic of uh, public health uh, and the economy, how to think about the interaction, um, you know, that's, that's been around. And so I, I found those podcasts just incredibly interesting and illuminating from many different directions. Josh, what, uh, when you were really the secretary of uh, Maryland Department of Health, uh, what, what are the things that keep you up at night what, from a public health standpoint? What are the things you, you folks worry about? Well, um, you know, in many different areas, there are things to worry about. I think um, the idea that there is a new threat to health that um, is coming and we're not ready for it is something that every public health official worries about. I mean, we worry about uh, what a pandemic would look like. We worry about an environmental catastrophe. We worry about, you know, um, other types of things. And I think that one of the ways to cope with that worry is to address some of the problems that exist today um, in a way that strengthens our capacity to be resilient. You know, so if it's possible to think about um, challenges that, you know, may reflect some of the inequities we're talking about and um, could be lead poisoning, could be asthma in children, could be older adults falling, things that, you know, are problems and are, uh, are very serious health issues, but not really considered like a pandemic. But if you treat them with urgency and you develop structures that say, well, okay, let's map where the falls are. Let's figure out what's behind the falls. Let's see how we can get those falls down. What's going on in nursing homes? What's going on in assisted living? You know, you can actually develop a little bit more um, of the capacity that we then can mobilize when there are these unknowns. So for me, it was, you know, what can we find out there that, um, is not going well, and how can we fix it in a way that strengthens our ability to prepare for the unknown? I feel like I could go on and on chatting with you about this because I find this fascinating, and I know most of uh, our listeners do as well. But, Josh, in closing, what's the one thing the listeners need to know about this pandemic? If there were one take-home message you had from a public health standpoint and from your position, um, what's something people need to know and need to act on? Well, I, people, I think people should have faith that we will get through this based on working together and using science and evidence. You know, I think some of the misinformation comes from the fear and the hopelessness of when will this ever be over? There's nothing. There must be someone responsible for it. There must be something going on. I think what we've seen with the vaccines, what we've seen with, you know, our understanding of the virus um, is that if we 
do things that make sense, we can defeat the virus. If we do things that make sense together, it'll happen a lot faster. And so I hope people can, you know, take a step back and say, well, it seems the future seems uncertain, but boy, did the future seem uncertain a year ago, you know. But we've learned so much. We've gained so many tools to fight the virus. If we really just band together and use them, if we work together, um, we will be able to get out of this as quickly as possible. Josh, thank you. Thank you for your time today. And, and more importantly, thanks for all the work you do in public health and uh, your podcast, uh, Public Health on Call. I recommend it to all our listeners. Uh, it has been a great resource tool, uh, not just for me, but I think for a lot of public health professionals. And that's how I found out about it. So, again, thank you for your time today and everything you do. Thanks, Dr. Lessing. With that, that was my guest, Dr. Joshua Sharfstein. Uh, many thanks to our studio producer. Joey Burgoyne has been on the board for us today. Jeff Chandler's in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Uh, next week on Healthy Rounds, we're going to be back to discussing more and more about the vaccines, where you get them, how effective it's going to be, and, and when is this going to end? And there are a lot of studies being done about that, and well, how do we define an end? Also, we want to talk about the issue of your employment. Are you going to be forced to get vaccinated against COVID-19? A very interesting issue that we'll discuss next week. You can get the Healthy Rounds podcast and download it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts uh, if you missed any part of today's show. Please remember to help save lives. Become an organ, eye, and tissue donor. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and Yukon Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.